welcome back to Don't Take Our Word For It with Peter Sikosh and some other guy. <laughs> good, good. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you, from one mother to another. <laughs> That's great. Everyone, uh, welcome to Episode 7 of Don't Take Our Word For It, uh, John Lennon Assassination Part 3. Uno dos trace, yes, and uh, we don't take this very lightly. Very, very heavy subject, but we'll have a couple of laughs along the way at some of the absurdities and uh, maybe how my face is all screwed up and scratched. So how has your Mother's Day been so far, Mr. Seacott? It's been all right, sir. I uh, got my mom some flowers. Why? <laughs> <laughs> what is there, like a holiday or something today? Yeah, the, the, something. Groundhog Day? Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I had a thing for that. Uh, hold on. Um, I think you'll get a kick out of it. <laughs> oh, man, this, this show's got a laugh track now, too, huh? Uh, yeah, you could say that. No, that was my stomach. Uh, I'm hungry. All right, so um, what do we have on the agenda for today, Mr. Well, well, the first thing I'm going to do in this show is a little house cleaning. Circle back around and touch upon some of the people and subjects we've covered earlier in the series. All right. Um, this first part is not at all Lennon-related. Oh, uh, all right. Well, hold on, hold on. Whoa! Whoa! <laughs> All right. In the previous show, you mentioned the early career of one guy, Bannister. Mm. Um, I looked this up and I thought I would share it with you in the audience. Does, oh, that, does everyone out there know who Guy Bannister is? Uh, well, he's a, he's a figure that comes up regularly in the Kennedy assassination that uh, Oswald had apparently worked for, I believe it was the summer before the assassination. Yeah. Um, and he was like an ardent right winger that was running the, uh, I guess he was running the, the like an office down, I forgot, somewhere, somewhere in New Orleans. Yeah. And it happened to be like right by all these, these different uh, intelligence agencies and government agencies. Um, like in the movie, Oliver Stone's movie, he was played by Ed Asner. Right, right. And so he gets he gets uh, he gets Oswald to go work for him, um, but Oswald is strangely just like a block away, passing out these these flyers, these pro communist flyers, and on at, Oswald makes the mistake of putting on one of the flyers um, Guy Bannister's address. Right. So it was it was super weird. This this like super right wing guy is having Oswald, who's you know saying he's a he's a, a ardent you know communist, passing out these flyers. Uh, I think it was fair play for Cuba committee or something. That's right. No, you're right. And and keep in mind, folks, this is the part of the sheep dipping process to set up uh, Oswald's backstory and his legend. Right. Exactly. And uh, and I believe it was uh, Garrison. He was the guy who did the the, the main uh, JFK yeah. investigation. He was the only one to uh, bring it to like actual trial. Um, he happened to know Guy Bannister from his FBI days. And so this was sort of like kind of key for him. He was like, wait a sec, this guy's a, like a right winger. Why was he having this guy Oswald, who was, you know, accused of shooting the president, pass out these these communist flyers? Um, 
you know, to people walking down the street and, you know, getting fights with people and all this stuff. It just didn't make any sense. He was even on a talk show panel where he uh, was getting into a fight with another gentleman. Right. Well, um, take a look at this. This is uh, you you had brought up something uh, quite interesting that not a lot of people know. So uh, Dr. Joseph Farrell and his LBJ and the conspiracy to kill Kennedy writes, for one thing, Guy Bannister was at one time the FBI agent in charge of the Butte, Montana FBI field office in 1947 and was thusly intimately involved in the FBI's covert investigation of UFOs. Beginning with the famous Kenneth Arnold sighting in June of 1947, the Maury Island UFO affair, and of course, the Roswell incident in July of 1947. So just to break this down for people, um, the Kenneth Arnold sighting is, uh, there was a guy who was flying his plane, and I think he was like, he was looking for another crashed plane, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and he, he changed his story out- a couple times. <clears throat> yeah, but he was he was out by like Mount Rainier, and he apparently saw these these flying discs. It's up yeah. in uh, like Washington no, State. The, he described it. The weirdest part about that whole thing is that what he he had seen was a whole bunch of aircraft that he couldn't um, identify, but they weren't the classic saucer shape. They were like wings, like half wings that we would see. They, they looked that's like, right. That's right. But he described it to the press afterwards like a, a, a pebble skipping through the water like a saucer. Right. And then, coincidentally, all of a sudden, then the flying saucer uh, phenomenon became a phenomenon. But originally, what he had described was not saucer shaped. But weirdly enough, the sightings after that, like with Roswell, were like a flying disc or a saucer. But that's not what Kenneth Arnold originally saw. He just described it like a, a, a pebble skipping through the water like a saucer. Oh, interesting. Which interesting. And the yeah. press kind of took it from there with that, uh, that description, I guess. Description. Yeah. yeah, and that wasn't what he was describing it as at all. But that craft became the norm after that, though. And the, the wing thing, the half a wing type craft that Kenneth Arnold saw didn't really have that many sightings, but... Anyway, it has nothing to do with, with John Lennon, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> I yeah, love the UFOs, uh, folks. I love the UFOs. <laughs> Just in, in quick summary, the other incident mentioned here is called the Murray Island Incident. Yeah. It's it, This also happened in Washington State. Um, there was a guy named Harold Dahl, and he had gone out on his boat with uh, his pet dog, his son, and two other guys. And I guess his job was like he was a volunteer logger or something. Like he would go down and try and get the, the, the logs out of the, out of the water. Yeah. Um, but he's out there on the lake and up, up in the sky suddenly he sees, I think it's six uh, like donut-shaped uh, discs. Yeah. And there's like a, the, the five are like circulating, uh, circulating, circulating, circulating. Circling. Uh, circling. circling. Yeah. <laughs> God, I can't talk today. They're, they're circling. The uh, this this one uh, craft in the middle, and the craft in the middle is first like shooting out all this like um, molten, like metal metal debris, and then it like, starts shooting out this molten yeah. uh, like slag, and like part of it falls on the boat, kills the dog. Yeah. Another part like lands on his son's arm and burns it, and so he had this like this crazy UFO thing happen, and then from there it uh, the, the story kind of gets weirder from there, but it, it starts to involve this guy named Fred Chrisman, uh, who's kind of a weird character. Um, 
it starts to involve uh, Kenneth Arnold, who saw the the Mount Rainier sightings, right? And it starts to involve like a I guess it was like a, um, a a Pulp Fiction editor named Ray Palmer, and it got into all this other weird stuff. But which Ray um, Palmer is the Adam out there for everyone? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I am a dork. Anyway, so getting back to Guy Bannister, author Peter Lavenda writes. A look at recently declassified FBI files for that period in 1947 show a number of telexes. That's just like an old type of, like they'd send you a... Uh, fax. Yeah, like it's like a fax, basically. Um, FBI files for the period of 1947 show a number of telexes from Bannister with his initials WGB. That's William Guy Bannister. All pertaining to UFO phenomena, as well as other FBI documents with the designation Security Matter X, or simply SMX. The X origin, the right, the origin of the X-Files, which, at least in 1947, did exist at the FBI and was concerned with UFOs. Yeah. Um, one of the participants in the infamous Murray Island UFO affair in 1947, Fred Chrisman, became, along with Guy Bannister, a subject of interest to the garrison investigation of President Kennedy's murder. I believe uh, it's theorized that this guy, Fred Chrisman, could have been one of the tramps, one of the three tramps. I've heard that. Um, yeah, we, we can get more into like the Kennedy assassination in another episode. Um, also remember, but, Jack Martin was uh, part of that original X-Files with Guy Bannister, too. That's right. That's he's right. Another, he's another uh, figure in the Kennedy assassination, folks. Yeah, this isn't the only odd connection to space matters in the Kennedy assassination, but that's for another show. Right. All right. Returning to the matter at hand, the John Lennon assassination. Right. The Beatles leader are one of them. <laughs> you know yeah. that thing we've been talking about this whole time? Well, it's good to have the context of these other things that are related because, uh, you know, from the majority of my research is that it's all related to each other. Yeah. And, and one thing that I really want to do in this show is, number one, provide my sources. Number two, if I happen to be wrong about something, I am just going to come out and tell the audience, like, yeah, I mean, hey, yeah. I got this better information. Six, um, is and, me, six is helping me set up a sub stack to put all the links so I'm not driving yep. people nuts anymore. But we'll have a special sub stack for our thing, you know, for here. So don't take our word for it. Check the sources. Yeah, we, will get, a, we will get a source list up here shortly so that you, the audience, can go through and examine everything I've been looking at. Because I know I'm kind of jumping around from quotes here to there, and sometimes I don't, like, say who the, the particular person is. So well, You'll be able to see it if you have questions, and, you know, and I'll be uh, starting my uh, thesis very soon. Sounds I great. Just, I don't feel very well today, folks, so I'm trying to get all the energy I can right now. <laughs> anyway. Go all on. right. So, so moving on. Here's our first quote. When it gets down to having to use violence, then you are playing the system's game. The establishment will irritate you, pull your beard, flick your face to make you fight, because once they've got you violent, then they know how to handle you. The only thing they don't know how to handle is nonviolence and humor. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and that's a quote by John Lennon. He's a very smart guy. Yes. All yeah. right, here's the next one. I have a lithograph. A lithograph is just a type of print, for anyone yep. wondering. I have a lithograph of John F. Kennedy, and I hung it in our living room. 
Gloria didn't want me to because it would stare down on us when we watched TV and ate and stuff. Maybe. But I wanted it that way. The assassination has always meant a great deal to me. That's Mark David Chapman, Interview People Magazine, 2 March 1987. Mark David Chapman, quote about the John F. Kennedy assassination. Thank you. Exactly. You know what's interesting about assassination? Well, not only does it change those popularity polls in a big fucking hurry, but it's also interesting to notice who it is we do assassinate. Did you ever stop to notice who it is? Stop to notice who it is we kill? It's always people who tell us to live together in harmony and try to love one another. Jesus, Gandhi, Lincoln, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, John Lennon. They all said, try to live together peacefully. Bam, right in the fucking head. Apparently, uh -huh. we're not ready for that. Yeah, that's very difficult behavior for us. I'm going to take a guess at that, if that's okay. Is the quote still, are you done with the quote? I, I didn't mean to cut you off. but I'm done with the quote. It's a... <laughs> <clears throat> it's a big club and you ain't in it. That's, That's right. Mr. George Carlin. Mr. George Carlin in the Life is Worth Lo Losing stand-up special, uh, Beacon Theater, New York, New York, um, November 5th, 2005. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. So. And he wasn't wrong. He was not wrong. Not wrong. And Bill Hicks had a similar thing he used to say, too. I'm not going to paraphrase right now, but yeah, basically anyone that ever wanted any kind of peace and harmony, no war, would get one in the fucking head. Yeah. Yep. yep. All right. So the first person I'm going to return us to is a guy named Sean Strub. I mentioned him briefly in the last show as one of the witnesses. Who? Yeah. So this is this is what's weird. I didn't. There's there's a few others I didn't include here, but. The more that you look into these people who apparently witnessed John Lennon getting shot, they didn't witness it at all. So this is kind it. of like, yeah, they heard it. They were standing some distance away, and yeah. then they heard it. And uh, this this kind of, you know, it's like you and I were talking in the last show about how you often want to look at the articles that come out, like, immediately after, like, in the first week of some event happening. Before the because, official story cements. Right. But what also happens is... Witnesses tend to talk to one another and then they get, they hear they things corrupted. and then they can be corrupted, like in terms of what they saw. Then they start remembering it differently because they talked to Susie and Susie saw, yeah. oh, yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe and they start questioning their own memories. Yeah, that happens. Right. right. So, uh, so Sean Strub, the witness to the shooting mentioned earlier, does not appear to have actually seen the shooting as indicated by testimony to reporters at Roosevelt Hospital an hour after the shooting. Reporter, will you tell us what you saw? Can we get your name first of all? Sure. My name is Sean Strub. I heard four shots and got down at the end of the block and saw a number of police cars there. There were a number of police cars by then, and they put John in the back of a police car and took off. Yoko was with them. He didn't look very good. He got shot at least four times, I guess. One officer said two times. Other people were saying as many as six. But I heard four shots. Yeah. Where was he shot? Right into the vestibule, right going into the vestibule at the Dakota where the cars go in. All right. 
So similarly, uh, there there was uh, the taxi driver who I mentioned earlier who claimed to have seen um, seen the shooting. He was bought. He was parked behind the the Lennon's limo, the Ono we Lennon's limo. Still don't have that driver's name. We still don't have that driver's name. It's very weird. Um, but the taxi driver, the more the more I look into it, the more it looks like he didn't see it either. And his story kind of changes throughout the years as well. So um, about that group with them, Peter. Someone yeah. that group with them. So someone that had to have scared the hell out of everyone involved to shut the hell up, including yeah. this taxi driver. Yeah. That's all I can think of. I don't I'm in know. agreement with you. Yeah. Or they killed Yeah, them. I mean, it, it, there, there should be, by all accounts, more witnesses to the story. And there aren't. And that's what's weird about this. Yes. Um, it's, like, it's like somebody came along and shut this whole thing down uh, pretty soon after it happened. Or paid people off, or both scared the hell out of them, or silenced others. They had friends. Anyway, but not to rehash that, because I have a little nugget coming up next week on that. Anyway. I love it. All right, so do you remember we were talking about Paul Goresh? Yes, this creepy character. Yeah, so... so Pretended to be a handyman, right, in the Dakota? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So previously, um, so previously, I described him as the Lennon super fan, and he had lied his way into the Dakota dressed as a VCR repairman. Now, something I have to correct: he never actually made it into John's apartment. Uh, the first trip up inside the Dakota, he ended up, I think, meet ending up in like the the hallway outside Lennon's apartment, and then the yeah. second time. He ended up in, in Lennon's downstairs office and then was talking to, to John. So right. he never technically made it inside of his apartment. So it's kind of a little detail, but I thought I'd just put that but on the record. he accomplished whatever goal he had. He became friends with it, John. <laughs> you know? Right. So, yeah, and, he lied his way into the Dakota dressed as a VCR repairman. And remember how we both thought how, like, weird and suspicious that all was? But yeah. I couldn't really – we couldn't really put our finger on it. We are just like, hey, this is – you know, something's not right here. Right. Well, I, I dug a little deeper into that as well. So, oh, wow. yeah, it's often portrayed in documentaries featuring, featuring Paul Goresh that Goresh and Lennon had a special bond and became and Goresh became his unofficial photographer. You know, like if you watch the documentaries, they often show like, you know, where they feature Goresh. They're interviewing him. He's talking about like, yeah, we walked all over the neighborhood and. You know, he was kind of mad he's, at me at first, but he's then always a, he's always a staple in these documentaries about the the official story. He's usually right. always on hand to give it a, an interview. Yeah. Right. He, you know, at, at most he's portrayed as like mildly mischievous, but then he's kind of happy go lucky because he wants to be with his buddy and that right. kind of thing. Well, it turns out Goresh may have not been as much a Beatles super fan as much as he was an obsessive Beatles memorabilia collector right. with super stalker tendencies. <laughs> yeah. Ever since his encounter with John at the Dakota, the obsessive Goresh went into overdrive. So this is after he makes his way into his, the, the building twice. Yeah. Uh, his obsessiveness with uh, John Lennon kind of goes into overdrive. And he starts parking his van outside Lennon's residence for the remaining period that John was alive. Very odd. Very yeah. Creepy. His Lennon photos were not taken out of love for Lennon. They were simply taking, taken as a money-making scheme. So 
As researcher David Whelan notes, Goresh's main interest in life was collecting Beatles and pop culture memorabilia and selling it in the pop memorabilia community. Only one person ever got to see the inside of Goresh's dwellings, and he reported that the apartment was packed to the rafters with pop memorabilia boxes and files. Wow. To protect his precious hoard, Goresh was known to have installed the latest electronics. His, his precious whore? Hoard. Oh, hoard. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's precious sorry. whore. I get that as a shirt. Don't take our word for it, precious whore. <laughs> It has my my, my big ass picture. Like, oh man, I'm 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 going to start designing that the minute that we get off this uh, precious this podcast whore. here. And then it'll say, "Don't take our word for it." On the top, on the bottom, looks like I need a bathroom bed. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> always right. a marketing, always a marketing opportunity, but I digress. <laughs> to protect his precious hoard. <laughs> Goresh was known to have installed the latest electronic security devices to keep out any intruders. Right. One album of Beatles photographs was said to contain hundreds of candid and unseen snaps of the Fab Four, unknown to the Beatles collectors around the world. We can only wonder where Goresh got access to such pop culture treasures and how he paid for them. In 2021, Whelan contacted a New York diner waitress who posted online that she was often harassed by Goresh at her place of work. This harassment apparently went on for months, and Goresh made her fear for her safety. Goresh even went as far as to steal the waitress's Facebook login details and her home contact details. Goresh returned to the diner with the waitress's Facebook photos printed out on paper. Odd. Yeah, Goresh clearly had, see had serious stalker tendencies. Listen to this. This is, this is kind of interesting. Lennon assistant Fred Seaman told assistant David Whelan, told author David Whelan, I'll read that again. Lennon assistant Fred Seaman told author David Whelan, John used to refer to Goresh, to Paul Goresh, as that fat fuck. That's my nickname. And, and Fred Seaman, that's uh, John Lennon's assistant, considered Goresh a very real threat to the Lenin security. Yep. Now listen to this. Another Dakota insider told David Whelan that Lenin thought Goresh might be taking pictures of him for the FBI. All right, that changes uh, <clears throat> that changes everything, actually. Yeah, to me this really changes the whole dynamic of Goresh's part in the assassination. Listen to this. Goresh's main claim to fame is taking the picture of Chapman getting a copy of Double Fantasy signed by Lennon. Let me just put this up on the screen here for everyone. If anyone forgets this, this famous photo. So Paul Goresh took this photograph. This is his main claim to fame. Yeah, that's uh, the last official picture of John Lennon alive, right? Right. Yeah. Goresh's main claim to fame is taking the picture of Chapman getting a copy of Double Fantasy signed by Lennon six hours before Lennon was gunned down. Chapman has said subsequently, listen to this, this is weird. Chapman has said subsequently that Lennon did sign an album for him with a black Bic pen, and this almost certainly happened. 
Chapman gave an interesting detail about the album Signing Moment, telling Larry King in 1992 that it was Paul Goresh who pushed him forward to get his record signed, telling Chapman, here's your chance. Chapman asked Lennon to sign his album, and Goresh got his iconic photograph. It's weird. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, it's weird. Keep, listen to this. This gets, this gets stranger. When Goresh, Paul Goresh, heard about Lennon's murder the next day, Goresh apparently rang the New York City Police Department to tell them he may have captured an image of the killer with his camera. I told them it could be used as evidence to prove the guy was there, Goresh said. This, is, this all begs the question, how did Goresh know he had Chapman on film? Goresh had subsequently said that when he took his famous shot of Lennon and Chapman, he was deliberately trying to cut the persistent and then unknown fan out of the shot. How could Goresh be so sure he had Chapman caught on camera? Chapman's identity was being concealed by the NYPD in the days after the murder. Weird. Well, they put the coat over his head, remember? Right. I even got a... I even got us a printout of that today, if anyone Whoa. is wondering. Whoa. So it might not even be Chapman then. Right. There's, there's, there is a talk that I, I've heard a story anyway where they had used, they put the coat over like a, a decoy's head, and then they put one over Chapman's head, and they, they moved Chapman out a different out way the back, in the, out the back, out the back yeah. door, and then they used the decoy out the front for reporters. They did that and, with Lee Harvey at the movie theater. Remember, I showed you the. I was behind the movie theater in right. Dallas. There, a lot of you know people say that Lee Harvey came out both the front and the back. Yep. You know what's weird is that the police's excuse for doing this was that they didn't want a repeat of Jack Ruby. You know, like some somebody shooting Chapman. That was their official excuse when they were asked about this. Um, anyway. Um, Getting back to Paul Goresh, the this like super suspicious guy for the FBI. So you found a paper trail that leads him in the employ of the Federal Bureau Bureau of Intimidation. It was strongly suspected by Lennon. That's all I'm going to say. It was strongly suspected by Lennon. Okay. And with the uh, the other security who were at the Dakota, just it's just a weird thing. And who and who was in charge of that security? I don't know. Whack and hut. Oh, whack and hut. Yeah. So it's strange that Chapman never went into any detail. Listen to this. This is this is strange. It's strange that Chapman never went into any detail about where he bought the infamous Double Fantasy album that Lennon supposedly signed for him. Author David Whelan managed to get access to NYPD Lennon murder evidence vouchers for items collected around the murder. One of the items is for one LP record album by singer John Lennon, Double Fantasy, bearing the autograph of John Lennon. So if anyone's wondering, it's this is your album. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so in the previous show, I had reported that Chapman's record was among the items later found in his hotel room. The actual story about the album is equally interesting. I don't I don't have any further evidence that it was found in his hotel room just to kind of set the record straight. But the other story on where the record was found is equally strange. Listen because, to this. Because how would it get back to his hotel room when it was exactly on? right. 
the finder of this property, this is the uh, the record, the LP record, Double Fantasy. The finder of this property, this is after the shooting, was a Philip Michael who went on to sell the album at an auction. According to people at the Dakota, a man, supposedly Philip Michael, found the album in a plant display that stands next to the Dorman's Gold booth by the Dakota driveway. Strangely, though, you would need a ladder to reach the plant pot and place the album in it. But that is where it apparently ended up and was found by Philip. It's weird. So listen to this. There's one more mystery sounding Goresh. Chapman and the signed LP. Looking through the police inventory vouchers, author David Whelan found another double fantasy album that was handed into the NYPD on December 11th. So apparently, like, I'm, I don't know if one was found in his hotel room for sure, but it, that, that was also reported. One was right. found in his hotel room, and yes. then one was found in this planter that was, like, over by, you know, the, uh, the as you call it, the, the gold portage on. The portage um, on, I stood next to that. I'm like, hey, anyone in there? I got to go. <laughs> I didn't do that, but, but I stood next to it. Yeah. But, but also, when, this, when author David Whelan looked into it, he looked into the police vouchers. There were multiple, there were two. Uh, of these double fantasy albums that have been taken in by the police. It's weird. Like they're all, these records are all over the place. Is it possible that we only had in the picture, just one of the albums and Chapman didn't have two that he wanted signed. Well, listen to this, listen to this. I'm going to finish this part here. There's one more mystery sounding surrounding Paul Goresh Chapman and the signed LP looking through the police inventory vouchers, Author David Whelan found another double fantasy album that was handed into the NYPD on the 11th of December. This one came from Paul Goresh. Paul even handed in the yellow Vogel records and tapes bag it was purchased in. Vogel records is just like, it's like, mm. uh, yeah, just like a, a record company. Like you have a Virgin Megastore or something back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the voucher, the police voucher, stated that this album was surrendered by the owner, Paul Goresh, so that it could be processed for latent prints of Chapman. Yeah, it never was. Listen to this. Why did Goresh have a copy of Double Fantasy? And why were Chapman's fingerprints allegedly on it? Chapman apparently had his own record. Why would he need to look at a Goresh album? Could Goresh have given a copy of Double Fantasy to Chapman and Chapman never actually brought one himself? No. Or, yep. Or did Goresh bring a job lot? A job lot is just like a miscellaneous collection of things. You know, like if you go to a comic book collection, you see guys with wagons full of like books that they want signed from all their favorite artists. Oh, yeah. So that's what like a job lot is. So it's like, did, did Paul Goresh come with all his, his things? Like, did he come with like this giant collection of stuff to get signed by by Lennon. And folks, just keep in mind, if he, if Mark David Chapman didn't bring his own copy, that destroys the, a big part of the official story right there. Yep. Yep. So, listen to this. Could Goresh have given a copy of Double Fantasy to Chapman and Chapman never actually bought one himself, or did Goresh bring a job lot of albums to the Dakota that day? Chapman having his copy signed by Lennon was very fortunate for Goresh as he made a lot of money out of selling and licensing his picture. Goresh would go on to make well over a million for the photograph. 
So he originally sold the, the photograph for $10,000, I believe, to a newspaper. And then through all these licensing deals, um, he, he managed to make like a million or like one and a half million or something. Abraham Zapruder. Yeah, Paul Goresh is the Abraham Zapruder of the Lenin assassination. Just like by, by all surface appearances, he, he doesn't seem like that out of, out, of the, out of the blue. But when you look into it, it's very weird that he's there. Yeah. So did Goresh somehow know that he would need copies of that album on that day for the purpose of taking the photo of his life? Yeah. A photo of an album signing that would become the most valuable piece of ghoulish Beatles memorabilia of all time, witnessed and recorded by a guy who was one of the world's most prominent Beatles memorabilia traders. What are the chances? And then the FBI angle. Yep. Like so much in John Lennon's murder, it's all very strange and disturbing. Damn. Goresh's final claim to fame is Yoko, Yoko Ono, using a photo he took of her and Lennon walking outside of the Dakota for the sleeve of the posthumous. Where is that? Let me just get the, uh, the photo for the audience here. I'm not sure if people are actually watching the show or if they're just listening. But anyway. Both so this, we, got, we got good numbers on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and video platforms that's the famous one and this I'm photo was right there. yeah this was taken by paul goresh this is the uh this is the stalker who likes to photograph john lennon who yeah, parked a van outside his his house until lennon was shot okay look at, that. Look at the golden look at that golden porter john too <laughs> i know Thank i know you. here you go Thank you. <laughs> all right so Goresh's final claim to fame is Yoko Ono using a photo he took of her and Lennon walking outside of the Dakota for the sleeve of the posthumous Lennon single release of Watching the Wheels. Why Ono chose the location of her husband's bloody and brutal death <laughs> as appropriate record sleeve art is totally beyond me. It's Courtney Love shit right there. It is Courtney Love shit. Mm. Um, there's so see. This is the weird thing about this assassination. So there's so many parallels. What, and you know what connects? Uh, Courtney Love and Yoko Ono. Oh yeah, um, what's his name? Uh, the record producer, David Geffen. That's right, David Geffen. Goresh often appeared on Lennon's murder documentaries, claiming that he always felt there was something odd about Chapman, and he wishes he could have changed history by staying at the Dakota and someone stopping Chapman. Yeah, I'm sure. There, <laughs> there were rumors that in the late 1980s, Goresh was going to make a documentary with the involvement of Jose Perdomo, the doorman. I didn't hear that one. Say that again. There were rumors that in the late 1980s, Goresh was going to make a documentary with the involvement of Jose Perdomo, the doorman. We're going to get him on the phone. <laughs> We're going to get him on the line. Sadly, right. this documentary never came to pass. You know, maybe we can make it with uh, Perdomo, who's like 105 or whatever. If he's yep. still alive, yeah, let's get him on. All right. We'll okay, so out. Paul Goresh died in 2018 from an unspecified illness. His family have flatly refused to give anyone an interview about Goresh or the whereabouts of his really? famed memorabilia collection ever since. Why would they want to shut their mouths? Because he was a fed. <laughs> Maybe. That's that's the only thing that makes sense to me. Allegedly. I, don't I mean, for... For all I can account for this, I mean, he could have been like a, a guy who was just an obsessive, like, memorabilia collector. And the feds were like, hey, you know, 
what we really need you to do, we'll pay you, is if you go outside and, you know, keep a good eye on what John's doing and find a way to his apartment, you can get some photos of his apartment. Do we even That's know all that, that makes sense to me. Do we even know if that memorabilia was his own collection? No Thank idea. Thank you. No idea. Okay. I'm going to move on to our next suspicious figure here, if you're ready. Hey, I'm going to get my my foot, my uh, leg out of my neighbor right now. I'll, I keep talking. I'm listening. Sounds good. So the next suspicious character we're going to talk about is a gentleman named Elliot Gross. I had introduced him in the That's last gross. show. Gross. Gross. <laughs> So I would be remiss if I did not mention some even more interesting crossover with this case. Oh, my God. Yep. So Elliot Gross became chief medical examiner for New York City in 1979, exactly one year before, before Lennon was assassinated. Elliot Gross replaced chief medical examiner Michael Baden. Baden was removed from his position in 1979 by New York Mayor Ed Koch after Koch received complaints about Baden's work. Persons unknown connected to the New York mayor's office wanted Baden out of his post before 1980 came around. Michael Baden later won $100,000 in a wrongful termination suit. History will mostly remember Baden as the chairman of the House Select Committee on Assassination's Forensic Panel, Pathology Panel. The committee concluded that there was a likelihood that Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination was the result of a conspiracy. The committee also concluded that President Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. And a fourth shot came from a second assassin located in the grassy knoll, but missed. Baden as chairman of the HSCA forensic panel would have but certainly... Missed. But missed my ass. Right, right. Now, Bain is chairman of the... Right. What's that? No, right, right. The the shot from the front is the one that actually caused him to die. Anyway, sorry. I had to say yeah, that. Yeah, drawing, drawing some more weird parallels. It, you know, it's weird because if you think about it, like uh, Kennedy was... JFK was shot from the front, but they say he was shot from the back. Yeah. RFK, they say, was shot from the front, but he was actually shot from the back from the powder burns behind his ear. And then Lennon, Lennon they yes. say he was shot. They say he was shot from the back, but he was actually shot from the front in the front. Or even the side, too. Right. Through his, his left, left shoulder and through his, his yes. chest. Something smells fishy. Yep. So Michael Baden, as chairman of the HSCA forensic panel, would have certainly been earmarked as a man of integrity by many. Sadly, New York Mayor Ed Koch didn't see it that way, and Baden was not the New York chief medical examiner by the time John Lennon was assassinated in New York in December 1980. Right. So basically, they had to get rid of this, this medical examiner. As uh, I'm not making excuses for him, but as imperfect as he was, he was at least willing to come forward and say, hey, all these different suspicious you know, assassinations in the 60s. Right. There's something going on here. So they, they were like, the, the mayor was, and, and his office was like, or somebody above him was like, hey, we got to get this guy out of out of here before. Is he still kicking? Michael Bain? I'd be, I'd be curious to know. Hmm. Now listen to this. Yeah. So regarding Elliot Gross here. While trying to save Lennon, nurses Barbara Kramer and Deidre Sato 
observed that Lennon had four entrance wounds in his upper left chest and three exit wounds out of his upper left back, all three coming out of the back in a direction, in a direct line of fire from the front. No bullets strayed off course. So the nurses, they looked at Lennon's wounds three times. Uh, I believe once when, when it, you know, he, was, he was brought into the ER, a second time when they were washing him and putting the shroud over him. And there's this weird third time that they looked at his, his wounds when they were, they were um, wrapping up. And then this guy, uh, Elliot Gross, the chief medical examiner, the corrupt chief medical examiner, comes marching in saying, like, unshroud him immediately. I, I have to see all the wounds. So, oh, yeah. yeah, so they, he, he made the nurses do this weird thing where they, they sat John up in, like, a sitting yeah. position, causing more blood to come out of the, the, the wounds. Yeah. So, um. So what, what the nurses say is that he had four entrance wounds in his upper left chest, three exit wounds coming out of his upper left back, all three coming out of the back in a direct line of fire from the front. No bullets straight off course. One bullet stayed in Lennon's upper left chest area near his shoulder. While washing and shrouding Lennon at roughly around midnight, the nurses got another chance to see Lennon's entrance and exit wounds up close. The ER report written by Dr. Halloran, this, is, this happens before the chief medical examiner comes in, is you have the, the, the ER doctor finishes up his work, and then he right. writes a report about you know, the, the wounds. Yeah. But the ER report written by Dr. Halloran made out, after Lennon was pronounced dead, went missing. Of course. Yeah. yeah. This multiple copied report had a stick human front and back drawing, clearly illustrating where Lennon's entrance and exit wounds were. Police officer Tony Palma, one of the officers who first found the mortally wounded Lennon in the Dakota lobby office area, was yeah. strangely given the task of going to the New York City coroner's office to observe the autopsy. Normally, this task is carried out by a detective. Officer Tony Palma told journalist Fenton Bresler in 1985 that Lennon was his boyhood hero. And as, as uh, coroner Elliot Gross, chief medical examiner Elliot Gross, began his incisions, he could not take it and had to leave the room. Elliot Gross, therefore, performed the John Lennon autopsy unobserved. Oh, bullshit. Yeah. No, that's... So... Just to kind of break all this down again, so instead of having a detective, which is standard procedure, watch the autopsy take place, right. they had they had this cop who had found Lennon's body come in there, and he was supposed to go watch this guy Elliot Gross perform the autopsy on Lennon, right. but then he said he got too like you know timid and queasy about watching it because oh John Lennon's my hero, so he Do left the room. If, is he like Chapman? Do we even know if he was even like the Beatles? <laughs> that's uh, what i'm saying for you folks out there like think about this yeah was that his kind of story know. to not show up and be a witness to this that's that's what i'm thinking that's what i'm thinking chris listen to this to this day repeated requests under the freedom of information act have failed to release publicly the autopsy report so his er report is completely missing even though there were multiple copies made and his autopsy report, written by Dr. Elliot Gross, you know, won't be could, released despite uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. You know who could request those? Who's that? 
Julian and Sean. That's right. Just like Francis Bean Cobain could do that with her father's autopsy too. Yeah, they. Uh, I I think it's up to the family, if I'm not mistaken, to get these things uh, released. Listen to this. Because of the nature of the police investigation into the murder, a good deal of evidence is now gone. For one thing, John's body can't even be exhumed, for he was cremated soon after his release from the morgue. Kurt Cobain. It just it gets more and more absurd. Like I don't I don't even that, know what else to say. It's just like court, and the coroner in that case was friends with Courtney Love and used to be a, a used to be a um, a roadie for Hall. That's right. That's right. I want to. I actually now that we've gotten so deep into the John Lennon thing and you've drawn so many like parallels, I I want to do a I want to do a Kurt Cobain episode where you know you just have the floor and. You just run over all the facts in like excruciating detail because I, I actually really want to hear it. And I'll tie all the parallels to John Lennon and Kurt Cobain. Yeah, and you can you can even send stuff to me, and I can like start doing research on it yeah. at some point. That, um, uh, I'm already looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. All right. So getting back to Elliot Gross, uh, this is again the uh, medical examiner who was put in his position uh, after kicking out Michael Baden. Um, as chief medical examiner of uh, yeah. New York. Go along, so El- go along, Gross. Exactly. Yeah. Elliot Gross is now in his 90s and is retired in Florida. He has refused all requests for interviews regarding his autopsy on John Lennon. I'll make some calls. Okay. Ready for the, the next person here? Gross. So we're, we're now going to return to Gene Scott. Remember Gene Scott? Well, for anyone out there who doesn't remember, I remember, but for so newbies. Gene Scott, in the official story, he's this weird, uh, he's this weird cop friend of, uh, of Chapman's. And so Georgia. Lennon, Georgia. Lennon, yeah, Georgia. He lives in DeKalb, Georgia, which is kind of a weird place on its own. But, um, but Chapman uh, famously makes two trips to New York. The first trip is, is unsuccessful. But what he does is he takes his gun with him and flies out to New York, and then he forgets his bullets or something. And so he doesn't <laughs> have his... Buying, instead of buying bullets, you know, locally, well, you know, he well, has the, to take the, the plane back. The, the, weird, the weird thing, Chris, is that he forgets his bullets, and then he gets to New York, and then there's some sort of law about him. Uh, I, I forgot what the exact law is, but it's like if you're out of state, you can't just go and buy bullets in New York. I forgot exactly what the law was, but there was some reason he couldn't buy them in New York. So he caught a plane to Georgia to visit his pal, uh, Gene Scott. And he hangs out with Gene Scott and they go like target shooting and they go shoot things in the woods. And, um, he just, this, this good old cop friend just so happens to want to give Chapman hollow point bullets, right? Yeah. He gives him hollow point bullets. And then famously in the, in the Chapman narrative, at least in the official narrative, he goes back to New York on a second trip and then shoots John with, uh, the hollow point bullets. And this, you know, as, as you've speculated, I think quite correctly, uh, this is kind of used as a cover for um, where other shot. Ten, ten bullets fired. Total. Yeah. Or or like tr- trying to like cover up the, the actual locations of where the bullets came from. Yeah, exactly. OK, so Gene Scott. So what happened to Gene Scott Chapman's friend? Oh, suppose- hold on, hold on, hold on. My ADD brain is kicking in here. 
that could also be a very good reason not to release autopsy results because they wouldn't show any of the splintered, the splintered hollow point, uh, the shards, right? Yep. Yep. So what happened to Gene Scott Chapman's friend who supposedly provided him with the hollow point bullets? If, if also, again, if you look at the, the official narrative, uh, there's this whole thing of like, where somebody goes and interviews Gene Scott afterwards, after the assassination, and he's like, oh, well, I, I didn't know. I had no idea he was going to do something like that with, with the bullets I was giving him. So um, there's kind of this whole, like, whoopsie-daisy type, type attitude. Well, now, interestingly, Gene Scott was actually a pseudonym. This means it's not his real name. This was a pseudonym bizarrely invented by Fenton Bresler for his book. Gene Scott's actual name was Dana Reeves. Dana Reeves, the wife of Christopher Reeves, Superman? That's right. And, and, and Keanu Reeves. Well, Dana Reeves. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, yeah, Scott's, Scott's actual name was Dana Reeves. Yeah, I got to get my other leg out of my other neighbor. Uh, I'm going to be listening. Okay, sounds good. After John Lennon's assassination, a special agent in Georgia called Wesley Nunn was tasked to look into Dana Reeves. But Nunn revealed that his investigation into Reeves was limited in scope, stating... That's bullshit. Yeah, so this is this is this guy Wesley Nunn, the special agent, talking about him uh, being told to kind of investigate uh, uh, Gene Scott, you know, Dana Reeves. He says, apart from wanting me to go to check on where he Reeves got his hollow point bullets from, the primary thrust of my inquiries was into his background, what sort of a guy he was, that kind of thing. I got the impression the DA in New York was more concerned with fighting a defense of insanity at the trial than anything else. I never got into conspiracy. No one mentioned anything to me about the possibility, and I certainly didn't get into that area. Oh, convenient, huh? <laughs> there's, there's so many dropped balls in this, this case. It's, it is absurd. Like, No, I just dropped two myself. I, I believe you. Huh. I believe you. Good man. Third Good man. man. <laughs> Look at that. He's, even Heath Ledger agrees. <laughs> yeah. That's a cool tattoo. Thanks. It's all faded. Go on. <laughs> so while being processed at Rikers Island after his arrest, Chapman was, was still thinking about Reeves. Southern pastor Charles McGowan, this is a, this is a friend of uh, Chapman's that he had met at the YMCA. Yeah. Southern pastor Charles McGowan revealed to author Fenton Bresler in 1985 that one of the most important things Chapman asked him to do on his first visit to Rikers Island was to communicate with Dana Reeves and tell him that he, Chapman, was all right. McGowan told Bresler that he got through to Reeves, but Reeves didn't want to talk to him for fear of being implicated. Right. What? Yeah, so... So when, when, when Chapman goes to, he's first taken to Rikers Island to be processed because he's, you know, in jail right. or he's in prison, uh, this, this pastor friend of his, he's like, you know, super worried about his friend uh, Gene Scott or Dana Reeves. He's like super like, uh, you know, wondering what he wants to let him know that he's all right. So he gets his pastor friend to phone this guy up and 
let him know that, you know, Chapman's all right. And so um, Dana Reeves on the other end in Georgia doesn't want to talk to Chapman because he's worried that he's <laughs> going to be. Like, Cause he's like, my job is already done. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Dying, he's man. like, he's like, I don't want to be implicated. So yeah. I played my so, part. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lead detective Ron Hoffman initially tried to keep Reeves identity a secret when being interviewed by author David Whelan. Ready for this? So where is Gene Scott or Dana Reeves? Where is Dana Reeves now? Well, she died so, after Christopher Reeves died. <laughs> so this is, you know, Chapman's, Chapman's buddy. Right. So since 1980, Dana Reeves has refused all requests for interviews. As of 2023, Dana Reeves, Gene Scott, is currently serving time in jail for child molestation offenses. Uh, of course. All right, we're going to move on to the next person. That's like the Vegas shooter and his brother. They they said that he was a diddler too. Yep. Yep. Is this uh, is this getting weird enough for you? No, I wanted some aliens, the Vril Society, <laughs> um, the Finders involved. I need uh, the Black Larry King from the Franklin scandal, and then maybe we'll get to weird. Sounds uh, good. This is fucking batshit nuts. <laughs> So we're going to move uh, briefly to Jose Perdomo. Ooh. Yep. The assistant prosecutor working at the DA's office at the time, Kim Hofgray, has confirmed that Perdomo was interviewed by the DA's office at the time and interviewed as a key witness. I would hope so. Other Dakota workers working on the night of the shooting have also revealed that Perdomo was taken to the local police station on the night of the murder to give his statements. Okay. Perdomo's wit. What about Jay Hastings? I was just about to comment on that. Jay Hastings, you won't believe this. He didn't feel like giving a witness statement, so the police so didn't make him go. Home. So he yeah, so he, home. yeah, he stayed at the front desk. All right. Yeah, couldn't get, when, couldn't get someone to cover for his ship. Yeah, when when Elliot Gross, the you know the corrupt medical examiner, after right. he made the nurses make you know Lennon sit up and all the blood pour back out of his wounds, yeah, gross. he. Uh, he caught a ride with the nurses and asked to be dropped off at the Dakota. He goes there and uh, Jay Hastings isn't, is the only one, like all the, most of the staff who were like outside of the Dakota at the time or anywhere in the vicinity of that whole area um, got taken down to the station to be, to give testimony. Jay Hastings didn't feel like going. And so he stayed there and he ended up talking with Elliot Elliot Gross about the the murder. It's it's very weird. It's fucking gross. Yeah. So let's see. And so illegal. Other... And illegal, by the way. Yeah. There's you all there... like going. Yeah. Cat yeah. Murder? How many? How many? How many people in this in the, in in this paper in these notes <sighs> yeah. just didn't feel like going? They didn't. They didn't want to give their testimony. Like oh. how? Okay. Yeah. It's it it's weird. So. Other Dakota workers working on the night of the shooting have also revealed that Perdomo was taken to the local police station on the night of the murder to give his statement. Perdomo's witness statements remain sealed to this day and have never been revealed to the public. Was he the one that brought back the Double Fantasy album to uh, Chapman's hotel room? Dude, I have no idea. It, this, this, it's just, this is just so weird. All right, so what did Perdomo tell Lennon's security guard Doug McDougal 
and Lenin's archivist, Michael Medarios, happened the night of 8th of December. So what, did, what, what was his testimony to them? So, imagine. yeah, after, after Ono and Lenin had exited their limousine, so by the way, per, per Domo, he was the one who had opened uh, Lenin's limousine saying like, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. Lenin. So after Ono and Lenin had exited their limousine, Perdomo apparently walked back to his Golden Dorman's booth located outside on the street. The Portageon. Just before he got there, he heard gunfire when he turned back into the driveway. Chapman was there and Lenin was slumped inside the vestibule door area at the bottom of the lobby stairs. Just to, I'm going to just give take a break here a second and actually show everyone so we got two more photos of the dakota so that's kind of the uh this is the guard booth or what chris calls the uh <laughs> the golden portage on yes so this is where jose perdomo says he was was he went back in here after opening john and yoko's uh limousine right so then take a look at this one. So this gives a little bit of a better view of looking yeah, I was at the, in there. I was in that. Only the gate was shut. Like, uh, right. So if you look at this, though, the, the vestibule, let me uh, grab a pen here. So if you look here. podcasting, folks. DIY right here. Here we go. I know. Seriously. So look. So you got this long vestibule hall right here. And then right here you have this entrance. There's There's steps right here that go up inside. Yep. And so Lennon was actually walking down this and somehow was shot from the front. So he's walking in this direction, was shot in the front in the left part. And, yet, and then he yet was shot Chapman, and then... Yet Chapman was across the street, wasn't he? Chapman was way kind of out here in... I guess this is a little bit of a better... Ch Chapman was somewhere over here, like yeah. on the, the outside. He was like... By all accounts, uh, by all descriptions, both by Chapman and uh, uh, Ono, he, he was never, 20... he never, never shouted anything to John. Nothing like that. No, and he and both Ono and Chapman say that uh, Chapman was twenty feet away. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, wow. And then, yeah. Let me let me get back to this. So, this is, now we're we're just talking about where Perdomo said he was. So yeah. I. You know, take this however you will. This is his testimony to Lennon's uh, security and uh, his uh, his archivist. Did he have a, an umbrella that he was pumping up and down by any chance? <laughs> Not that I'm aware. Not that I'm aware. Okay, so um, after Ono and Lennon had exited their limousine, Perdomo apparently walked back to his Golden Dorman's booth located outside on the street. Just before he got there, he heard gunfire when he turned back into the driveway. Chapman was there, and Lennon was slumped inside the vestibule door area at the bottom of the lobby stairs. Perdomo did not mention whether he saw Chapman with a gun or whether there was a gun on the ground at this point. Perdomo did not see Chapman firing a gun. Didn't he say, go get out of here? Listen, Perdomo did not say how he knew Lennon was inside the vestibule door area, but perhaps part of Lennon had been thrown partly back into the driveway from the force of the bullets that hit him. This would explain Perdomo saying to Officer Cullen that the bullets pushed Lennon through the door. Either way, Medeiros, this is um, uh, Lennon's security, 
is certain about what Perdomo said, what Perdomo said he did next. Apparently, Perdomo immediately went over to the vestibule door area and picked John up and carried him up into the hotel lobby concierge area. Perdomo then came back down to the driveway area and confronted Chapman. We can only assume that this is when Perdomo might have kicked a gun to the rear of the driveway and Joseph Manny shortly thereafter arrived to take the gun away. Author David Whelan writes, writes, I never bought into the theory that a mortally wounded Lenin could get through two sets of doors and climb some steps up some other doors and walk through offices all unaided. This never made much sense to me. Lenin being carried up the lobby entrance steps by Perdomo make, made perfect sense. One nagging question remained, though. Why didn't concierge Jay Hastings, who was at the front desk, right. why didn't concierge Jay Hastings say he saw Perdomo carrying Lenin into the lobby? Did Perdomo leave John just inside the lobby doors and Lenin then made his way, his own way into Hastings' office from there? This is highly unlikely. Why didn't Jay Hastings mention any of this? Right. Jay, Jay Hastings was adamant. Again, this is the, the front desk guy. Jay Hastings was adamant he did not see Perdomo carry a mortally wounded Lenin through the lobby doors. Someone was clearly not telling the truth about what happened to Lenin after he was shot. <laughs> yeah. So Perdomo saying, yeah, you know, I opened the limousine and then I turned around and then, you know, Lennon was shot and I heard the shots and then and I, I helped. Him, and I shouted to his kill, supposed killer, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> then, then I helped, you know, Lennon up the stairs and, yeah, you know, and then. Off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. So Jay Hastings story about what happened when Lennon came through the doors after being uh, mortally wounded, does not line up with Jose Perdomo's account. And Jose Perdomo's account um, that he gave to the police has never been released publicly. It's all weird. That's fucked. That's fucked up. <clears throat> Jose, okay, let's see. Let's see. Um, oh, here, I'm moving on to the next part. Um, Mark David Chapman, Aftermath. On the very night that John died, a call came through to the receptionist at the Dakota's front desk from a man in L.A. swearing that he was leaving for New York to finish the job Chapman started. The man was arrested in L.A. airport before he could get on a plane. What? Yeah. Was it in the news yet? Uh, that was my, my source on that is Who Killed John Lennon, page 237. This is Fenton Bresler. Um this this account is also mentioned in Donald Jeffrey's book on borrowed fame. What book? On borrowed fame. Oh, I gotta check that out. <laughs> so yeah, on the very night that John died, a call came through to the receptionist at the Dakota's front desk from a man in L.A. swearing that he was leaving for New York to finish the job Chapman started. The man was arrested in L.A. airport before he could get on a plane. You know, the same thing happened with Sandy Hook, by the way. Yeah. There was uh, a couple of phone calls made by an individual that said he was going to finish the uh, the job that Adam didn't at Alanza. Yeah, that's why St. Rose of Lima had to be evacuated uh, multiple times that weekend of the Sandy Hook shootings. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The only thing I can make of this is that it might have been my my theory on this, and I'm 
like thoroughly labeling this as my theory is that perhaps there were multiple people um, programmed to kill John Lennon. So and if, yeah. And something about the murder like triggered all these other, these other people who were probably set up to go. I you think know? John, John Hinckley was one of them too. Yeah. And we'll get into that in a minute. So listen to this. So during the time that Chapman was awaiting sentencing and while on suicide watch, he strangely happened to share a cell with Craig Crimmins, the Metropolitan Opera House killer, the last major case investigated by NYPD before Lennon's assassination. So um, if you don't know who Craig Crimmins is uh, for the audience out there, yeah. he was the he was this this guy in the last he was the last major case that the NYPD had investigated before John Lennon was killed. And he was this guy who had murdered this uh, violinist at the Metropolitan Opera House, uh, some violinist from Juilliard. Right. Um, and he had he had murdered her and then thrown her body off the off the um, the building. And, and she like her body landed on some ventilation shafts or something. Um, but the, the deal was that the whole NYPD was like working, you know, day and night trying to, you know, solve this case and figure right. out who the killer was. <clears throat> but but the, the police famously used that after the Lennon assassination as like, hey, well, you know, we got to the crime scene and there was this guy Chapman and he said he did it. So case closed. And so the, the police used this, used the Metropolitan uh, killer, the, the Craig Crimmins uh, incident as an excuse to not really look into um, what was going on with Chapman. Because, oh, yeah, yeah you know, he, he confessed. So we don't really no, need that much. We don't need yeah. to get, you know, uh, confessions from people or we don't really need to get witness statements. He um, changed his plea from uh, not guilty to guilty, no trial. Open yeah, trial. and it was like, it was like, oh, well, you know, the holidays are coming up and the police, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're tired from this, this case, you know. And so here's this, this one is like this, the, 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 um, the guilty party was served up on, you know, the, the platter. And so. Oh, yeah, Kurt Cobain, he was suicidal. Well, open and shut. Okay. Yeah, so Chapman weirdly ended up sharing a, a cell with this guy right after. I don't know why, but. Right, right. <laughs> so listen to this. Strange, Chapman, bed, strange bedfellows. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Chapman pleaded guilty to the murder in court after hearing the voice of God telling him to do so. Curiously, this came after Chapman was visited in his cell by various psychiatrists employed by his defense lawyers. Now, Peter, recently I was talking to my good friend Rhonda and my good friend uh, Tom Cooper. Yeah. They've been watching watching a series of videos. I forget uh, right now offhand, I forget the name of the YouTube personality that puts out these videos. But this gentleman takes video clips that he finds where he isolates the audio tracks and you can actually hear different voices talking to people in weird situations like almost egging them on like uh there's wow. a certain, certain frequency with the voice of god technology and things like that like usually with air conditioners for some reason there's a current or something where you'll hear like hey you're fucking pussy fucking shoot them all you fucking kill them just fucking kill them and this guy takes these tracks and you, he actually isolates them you know of course you wow. know of course he could be full of shit or not but i mean you know that's a you know possibility with anything but apparently he's the real deal and he's like isolating these like um these sh videos where people go postal or they go start shooting you can usually hear fucking do it right 
you know, shit like that. Right, like, right, you, right. You tune into it. You hear this technology being used, like harp type shit, but whatever. Even the Columbine kids, they said they they were like, you won't fucking do it. Just fucking do it. Like egging them on. You know what I mean? Like, right. Chapman, Chapman famously heard voices in his head saying, do it, do it, do it. Right. And and then like as soon as uh, as soon as you know he as soon as he had you know apparently accomplished his mission or someone else did or he thought he had accomplished his mission, uh, you know he sat sit down. down. He, sit down, motherfucker. Just sit there. Sit there and wait. Sit there and wait. Yeah, sit there and wait. I yeah. I believe it. I completely believe it. Yeah, he folded up his coat neat, nice and neatly, and he sat Catcher down on it eye. and opens his book. Catcher in the rye. John Hinckley, same thing. All, all the words on the page are like melting as he's looking at it, you know. Sirhan, Sirhan. RFK must die. RFK must die. RFK must die. RFK must die. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Voice of Listen God technology is real, folks. They tried to employ it with Waco to, against Koresh and everybody. Charlton and Heston. He, he even agreed to let them use his voice for it. Voice of God technology. Here we go. Yeah. Bizarre. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting that you brought up Sirhan Sirhan because that's the next part I'm going to talk about. Yeah. RFK's apparent lone killer, Sirhan Sirhan and Chapman, coincidentally shared a defense psychiatrist, Dr. Bernard Diamond. Listen to this. On July 31st, 1981, following an EEG test, that's an electroencephalogram test. It's a test that measures electrical activity in the brain using small metal discs attached to the scalp if that doesn't sound like fucking harp, weird harp. i know jesse ventura's conspiracy theory episode yep. on harp he yep. puts a little plate a little metal plate and he can hear it without using the auditory yeah he can hear it through the plate on his frontal lobe so on july 31st 1981 following an eeg test probably what you're you're describing chapman had a psychotic break where he destroyed a television set flooded his cell and began behaving like a monkey. Now listen to this. This is this is what's weird is Walter Bower in his book Operation Mind Control mm. relates how relates how Dr. Bernard Diamond, Sirhan's and Mark's defense psychiatrist had Sirhan climb the bars of his cell like a monkey in a hypnotic trance. This is exactly what Mark Chapman did as part of his wild tantrum. It's weird. Dave McGowan wrote about that too. Yep. Sirhan had previously complained in court about Dr. Diamond. Whatever strange behavior I showed in court was the result of my outrage over Dr. Diamond's and other doctors' testimony. They were saying things about me that were grossly untrue, nor did I give them permission to testify on my behalf in court. Hmm. Another wow. psychiatrist to examine Mark Chapman was Dr. Milton Klein. Klein had done contract work with the CIA on its notorious MKUltra mind control program, as a specialist in hypnosis research on the topic of programmed assassins. In 1979, Klein, that's Dr. Milton Klein, boasted on a TV documentary that he could create such a Manchurian candidate in a matter of months. Yeah. So one year before Chapman, this guy is talking about, hey, I can, I can do this. I can, I can create. Well, were they colleagues of Dr. Jolly and West? Because Dr. Jolyon West visited Jack Ruby, Sirhan Sirhan, Patty Hearst, most of the Manson family, uh, Timothy McVeigh. I can't wow. Keep going. Dude, once we get off this show, I want you to take a look and see if there's any sort of link there. I'm, I'm seriously wondering that now. Okay. In addition to 
to in addition to Diamond and Klein, that's uh, Milton Klein and Bernard Diamond. These are psychiatrists. Chapman was examined by psychiatrists. Listen to this. Dr. Daniel Schwartz, who had examined the son of Sam 44 caliber killer, David yeah. Berkowitz, and concluded that the accused serial killer believed he had been commanded by demons to kill. He was in a cult. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Schwartz, that's Dr. Daniel Schwartz, would testify that Chapman's voices were similar to Berkowitz's demons. He declared that Chapman continued to operate under his primitive kind of thinking in which he believed or believes that forces outside of him, supernatural or otherwise, determined his behavior. Right. So this is this is kind of a weird thing that you see in the official narrative where um, when they talk about like the psychological profile of of Chapman and what motivated him to kill. And they talk about his youth when he grew up and he believed that he was like um, like the leader of these little people that lived in the walls. And he uh, was forming like a government and stuff. And he they he talked to them and they talked to him and. Uh, you know, he had God commanding him and demons were commanding him. It's all this like weird stuff that's going on, like saying like uh, trying to wasn't Ross Perot, right? Ross Perot. Oh, (laughs) on the other hand, listen to this. On the other hand, to Diamond and Klein, Dr. Dorothy Lewis, who examined Chapman, said this is a, a different psychiatrist. Mr. Chapman had been experiencing auditory hallucinations while at the hospital unit at Rikers Island, and these experiences clearly influenced his decision to plead guilty. I question whether he was competent subsequently to plead guilty since it seemed to me that his fluctuating mental status made it impossible for him to understand the ramifications of such a defense or to assist his attorney in his own defense. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Ready for more for more weirdness, Chris? I that's my middle name, <laughs> Robert. <laughs> so there are some reports that an unnamed psychiatric expert actually brought in a suitcase full of catcher in the rye books to Chapman's cell. The expert then asked Chapman to sign them all and promised he would use the signed copies to help promote the book. No proof of these signed books has ever been offered up. The main suspect for the multiple book signings is probably Dr. Richard Bloom, who can be seen reading a copy of Catcher in a 1988 TV documentary. The inscription in Bloom's Catcher is different than the one Chapman wrote on the morning of December 1980. So it's weird. Well, they do know that Chapman didn't write Catcher in the Rye, right? That's right. He, he he didn't participate in that. So w- one thing that's really weird about this whole thing is he, when he's brought to Rikers Island, at first his, like Chapman is saying, he's kind of rationalizing and saying, I shot John Lennon to promote Catcher in the Rye. And he's, he's saying that, you know, this is his motivating factor. And different psychiatrists, when they start doing their, like their audio recordings with Chapman, they're talking about Catcher in the Rye with him over and over. And then... A little while later, the the narrative starts to the, the psychiatrist start talking about demons and how he was motivated by demons. Right. And then so Chapman starts talking about, oh, well, it's the demons that influenced me. And like a little while later, even Chapman starts Chapman changes his own narrative and starts saying, like, um, oh, you know, it was uh, it was my my desire to become famous and it was my desire to be known and to, you know, 
so his his own narrative is changing throughout this whole process, which is weird in itself because it's almost like he's being guided um, psychologically away from you know the catcher in the rye, anything to do with the catcher in the rye. It's really weird. Right. We have uh, some comments in the chat at uh, Rumble. Um, this is from FWMMPLE uh, from <laughs> Paul. They say that autism is the biggest connection between a lot of the more perverse crimes. I make fun of autism as someone with strong traits. Uh, what do you What do you make of that? All right, all right. Thank you for telling me that. No, that's not what I. No, that's what this. Uh, that's what one of the. Oh yeah. It's, 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 thanks how for did, listening to the show. That's interesting. How did Getty? This comes from JB Morrison two one one two. How did Getty get a hold of the pick? And how did they get the rights to the pick? I'm assuming that's because this is from way back at earlier in the conversation. I'm assuming it's Goresh's famous photo that they're referring to. Uh, ask me the question again. How did how did who get the rights how to did, Getty is like the uh, licensing for Oh, uh, the, the newspaper. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not sure I didn't I didn't look that far into it. I, I can find the answer and give it to you next show, though, if you want. Okay. And then uh, also Tom Cooper says, Chris Peter, what up, fellas? J.B. Moore, Morrison also says, good evening, Tom. You see, this is why I don't really go through comments during the thing, just because it breaks up the thing. But but the, these are dad guy. is uh, he, That's Pat the Plumber. He's he's in the chat, and so is uh, Six, new number six, evening dad guy. Uh, hey, Six. We got a couple more here, and you guys are killing it, Tom Cooper says. Well, thank you, Tom Cooper. Thanks, Tom Cooper. And, and uh, yeah, the shit is looking badass, whatever that means. Sorry. <laughs> so, anyway, just wanted to acknowledge everyone. Thank you for watching and listening. And uh, Hey, everybody out there who's commented, thank you for listening. That's I really appreciate it. No, a lot of, There's a bunch of people watching, too. That's great. That's great. Well, I've got a little bit more to go here. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's okay. It's totally okay. So listen to this. This is what's weird. Uh, I was, we're talking about all these psychiatrists visiting him. Yeah. So all these visits were unmonitored by independent authorities. Of course. It was an open house on messing with Mark Chapman's mind. And slowly, as the months rolled by, Mark began to perceive demons as another potential reason for killing Lennon. Ketcher wasn't out of his system yet, though. After ignoring his lawyer's advice to go for a temporary insanity plea and deciding totally out of the blue to plead guilty... After multiple hypnotist visits and then hearing a voice from God inside his head telling him to plead guilty, Chapman had his brief day in court. Asked if he had anything to say to the court before sentence was pronounced, Chapman proceeded to read from the book Catcher in the Rye. What chapter do you think he read, Chris? 27. Chapter 27. Notwithstanding his announcement... Months after the murder, that he killed Lennon to gain prominence to promote the reading of The Catcher in the Rye and how he believed he was Holden, Chapman never exhibited strong feelings about the novel until shortly before the shooting. And the copy of the book Chapman had on him was a new copy he had purchased on his way to the Dakota. Catcher may have been used as a device to trigger Chapman's programming. So the he remember he made like two trips to New York. The at first one he brought the, the catcher with him, you know, the catcher in the right book, and he didn't see he didn't see John, so he ends up throwing the book away. And then the second trip, he went back to New York, and then on his way to the shooting, he went he had to go purchase one. Yeah. So I, I think something 
this is just my opinion. I don't think that there's anything inherently in the book that uh, gives commands, but I'm sure that people have been programmed to get commands from it, if that makes any sense. Sirhan, Sirhan, John Hinckley. There was actually another one. I can't remember. There's, there's, there's two other less famous ones as well. Um, Isn't Lee Harry Oswald connected to Catcher in the Rye too? Somehow? Yeah, it was a, a dog-eared copy was apparently found on his shelf, which right. I obviously I got my own doubts about, but who knows if that was that that could be the case? I don't know. Oswald's journal. Yeah, yeah Oswald's journal. It could be up there with Oswald's journal uh, by given to given to. Um, uh, Henry Luce by Gerald Ford. Yeah. Um, Oswald's hogwash. Anyway, go on. <laughs> let's see. Um, so the case with Chapman was now closed. Oh, wait, let me, let me back up a second here. So notwithstanding his announcement months after the murder that he killed Lennon to gain prominence, to promote the reading of The Catcher in the Rye and how he believed he was Holden, Chapman now exhibited strong feelings about the novel. Chapman never exhibited strong feelings about the novel until shortly before the shooting. And the copy right. of the book Chapman had on him was a copy he had purchased on his way to the Dakota. Catcher may have been used as a device to trigger Chapman's programming. The case with Chapman was now closed, as in the case of Sirhan Sirhan, James Earl Ray, Lee Harvey Oswald, David Berkowitz, and others, there would be no trial. The official story remains legally unchallenged to this day, and all because Chapman changed his plea at the last minute. <laughs> Lennon's death triggered an outpouring of grief around the world with chanting fans gathering outside the Dakota and at the Roosevelt Hospital. Millions responded to a call for a 10-minute memorial of silent prayer the following Sunday with 225,000 people gathering in Central Park and a crowd of 30,000 people converging in Lennon's hometown of Liverpool. Mm. At least three Beatles fans committed suicide, prompting <sighs> widow Yoko Ono to appeal for mourners not to give in to despair. Didn't people commit suicide after uh, Kurt Cobain? Yeah, a whole bunch of uh, teenagers and children, uh, about over well over a hundred worldwide. Yeah, and oh he was God. murdered too. Yeah. One little known fact is that John Hinckley Jr. attended the prayer vigil that was held for Lennon on December fourteenth, nineteen eighty, in Central Park. Strangely, the person Hinckley was most obsessed over after Jodie Foster was John Lennon. Hey, at least one of them were, was, because uh, Chapman wasn't. Yeah, listen to this. A UPI, that's a United Press International, report in its 5 May 1982 edition stated, In opening remarks Tuesday at Hinckley's trial in Washington, his lawyer, Vincent Fuller, said Hinckley believed himself to be Lennon's killer, Mark David Chapman. And even bent on suicide, went to the Dakota apartments in Manhattan where Lennon was slain. What are you doing? That's really weird. What are you doing? 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 Yep. Author Donald Jeffries writes, one underpublicized and extremely odd aspect to this case is the fact that Chapman's wife, Gloria Hiroko Chapman, has remained shockingly loyal to her husband. 
Mm. In 2018, she even admitted to knowing that her husband was planning to kill Lenin. He came home scared, telling me that he that to make a name for himself, he had planned to kill Lenin. But he said, my love had saved him, Gloria stated. Whoa! Whoa! there, there's even this weird thing that happens right after the assassination where uh, Chapman is taken into the, the uh, NYPD police station yeah. and he's being questioned and he's being questioned. And then all of a sudden his wife calls, his wife calls like, like the police had not released um, what station uh, Mark was at or, or that he had been arrested or, they his just name. or his name. They hadn't released his name at all or any of this. How would she know? Yeah, and she how did she know which station to call too? She how ended up calling How would she know there was that she had to call someone a, a station that he was arrested at all? I know. It, it had broken in the uh in the news that uh Lennon was shot, but there wasn't it said like shot by deranged fan or something, but it wasn't um released beyond that who that's the, like, the that's like Eric Harris's father, Wayne Harris, calling the cops saying, uh, oh yeah, I I know that I heard that there's a shooting down there. I think my my son's involved. Yeah, what? so gl similarly Gloria calls the, the correct police station right. calling about calling about Mark and she has like a feeling that it might be Mark that was the that was the assassin. Same it, phone call I just described, Wayne Harris. Yeah. It, it's so it yeah, exactly. Same thing. So Moving on a little bit, so she goes. She goes into this big like phone call with with Mark at that point, and you know the police tell her, "Oh yeah, well Mark's in our custody and he's doing okay." And um, she's a lifelong handler, allegedly. Yeah, listen to this. So Gloria visits him. That's Chapman regularly. The couple is allowed forty four hours together every year, according to a news report. <laughs> They spend their time making pizzas, watching Wheel of Fortune, and having sex in a caravan on the grounds of the Wend Correctional Facility in Alden, New York. That's Gloria seemed to revel in her role as Mrs. Mark Chapman, the wife of a murderer, and not just any murderer, but one whose victim was known and loved by millions around the world. Oh, that's a turn on, huh? Yeah, listen to this. I felt a kind of joy for him, Gloria said about her husband, a happiness. Just for like a fleeting thought, you know, I felt relief for him. Like, hooray. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but I felt kind of a relief for him that he had accomplished something he set out to do. He didn't write a book. He didn't fucking make a movie. He's a sick bitch. Yeah. Listen to this. Emily Reese and Josie Lloyd in their book come together, right, to this day the U.S. government continues to withhold vast amounts of the singer's government files in the interest of the national defense or foreign policy. And I'm going to close with this by Mae Russell. Ooh. Both the date of Lennon's murder and the careful selection of this particular victim are very important. Six weeks after Lennon's death, Ronald Reagan would become president. Reagan and his soon-to-be-appointed cabinet were prepared to build up the Pentagon war machine and increase the potential for war against the USSR. The first strike would fall on small countries like El Salvador and Guatemala. Lennon alone was the only man, even without his fellow Beatles, who had the ability to draw out one million anti-war protesters in any given city within 24 hours, 
if he opposed those war policies. Lenin was a spiritual force. He was a giant like Gandhi, a man who wrote about peace and brotherly love. He taught an entire generation to think for themselves and to challenge authority. Lenin and the Beatles songs shout out the inequalities of life and the messages of change. Change is a threat to the longtime status quo that Reagan's team exemplified. Lenin was coming out once more. His album was cut. He was preparing to be part of the world, a world which was a worse place since the time he had withdrawn with his family. It was a sure bet Lenin would react and become a social activist again. That was the threat. Lenin realized that there was danger coming back into public view. He took that dangerous chance and we all lost. Anyway, that was fantastic, Mr. Sikosh. Starting next week, I will drop my bombshells. In closing. All right, folks. Thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, hear you next time. See you next time. There we go. All right, folks. That was Peter Sikosh. Check out his artwork. He's a comic book artist. He's Papa Papa Sikosh. <laughs> we'll see you next week. All right. <laughs>